Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Gull, fueling your mission. Pop into your local for some good value fuel. Gull.nz. From lunch through to tea, this is Afternoons with Staffy on SENZ. Just gone one o'clock and I'm looking forward to this next 50 or so minutes. Joining me in studio, two-time Olympian, London 2012 Olympics, Rio 2016 Olympics and the kayak and probably just as well known for his craziness when he takes on these amazing rapids and waterfalls around the world. Mike Dawson joins us. Uh, Mike, welcome in. Good to see you in one piece and looking relatively warm. Yeah, pretty warm. It's good to be in here and have a yarn about some good adventures. Amazing adventure. I just wanted to touch on your kayaking, first of all. You did that for quite a wee while as well, and it seemed like, well, you tell me, was it a was it a fun hobby that turned into a competitive sport, or was it a competitive sport that you took into a fun hobby? Oh, yeah, the kayaking was a good time. That's a long time. <laughs> Big part of my life. Um Started just as a bit of fun out the back of Tauranga, up in the Kaimais, uh, with my brother and a few mates from school. And then slowly we learned that it was actually an Olympic sport as we got older and then started training and traveling and making teams and whatnot. And then, yes, yeah, suddenly it became the full-time gig uh, for a lot of, for, I guess, yeah, a good part of a decade. And then um, when I finished racing, it was quite cool because I could actually return to the roots of why I started, which was getting out and discovering rivers around the world. And that's what I did until COVID, basically. And you always seem to take a GoPro with you and just share <laughs> your adventures. And you really garnered quite a big following for the sort of the extremeness that you took on. Yeah, we'd always take a camera with us, um, which, uh, I mean... When we were young, it was like a big camera and a big piece of plastic housing that we'd try and strap to our helmet, which was pretty hilarious looking back. And then as GoPro came onto the scene and adventure sports started to take off and you get some big brands getting on board, um, the production scale stepped up and we could document our adventures much better and at way higher quality. Fantastic. And was it hard to retire, in inverted commas, <laughs> from competitive kayaking? Nah, <laughs> no, it was it was because you're you're leaving the end of a bit of a um you know it's a massive part of your life every day you wake up and you train and you got your team around you coach and all the people that are supporting you and um you've got a real good kind of purpose every day you're just trying to get a little bit better um and you get a chance to test it say the Olympics when you sit on the start line but there's a time when all good things come to an end and it's time to move on so for me that was just a little bit after Rio. Um, and I wouldn't say I was gutted to retire. It was just uh, 
you know, it's just time. You've got a real, don't take this the wrong way, you've got a real sort of skier, surfer, <laughs> skateboarder vibe about you. Do you know what I mean by that? Like you're a pretty chill guy. Pretty chill sometimes, most time, try to be. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay, and you're still coaching kayaking? Yeah, yeah. So I'm, um, I've got a cool crew that I work with from Canoe Salem, New Zealand. So I work with uh, Academies, which is our pathway program, which is uh, a lot of fun. Very different being on the bank, um, standing in the sun or the rain, as it was this morning. Um, yeah, I enjoy, I enjoy the coaching, try and share a few lessons, because when we kicked off in the sport, I was... Uh, like Luca Jones and I, we kind of went through the ranks together and we sort of learnt it all ourselves and had bits of input from different people over the years. But it wasn't until we went to London that we started having full-time coaching support. And um, So hopefully we can share some of those lessons we learnt and uh, the next generation will be a bit more well off. Mate, you're already one of my favourite athletes because <laughs> do you know how many athletes say learnings and you've just said lessons twice? Oh, yeah. <laughs> learnings ain't a word, is it? I don't know. I guess not. <laughs> <laughs> I wanted to. I wanted to to tick off the the the, the kayaking pedigree because it was amazing, and you competed at at the world level for a long, long time. Um, unconventionally, now I'm going to take a break now because I want a big fat chunk before we get to the bottom of the hour to talk about this amazing expedition you've done to the South Pole. Last chance for you, well not last chance, people, double eight, double three, if you've just joined, I've got Mike Dawson in studio, he's just returned from a 1000k trek to the South Pole, think about that for a minute, think about what you're wearing, (laughs) and your propulsion, and the temperatures, and there's no little towns you can pop in for a muffin and a cup of tea on the side on your journey, we're going to go in deep with Mike Dawson after the break. Get your questions in double eight double three. Getting you through your workday one hour at a time. You're listening to Afternoons with Staffy on SENZ. Back in studio with Mike Dawson. We've established his uh, kayaking career, which was fantastic. But he's just come back from the South Pole in the Antarctic Heritage Trust, inspiring, it's a massive long word, basically a thousand k's to the South Pole. What a journey. Mike Dawson, how did it come about? What, what was the very first inkling you thought, that sounds good? Yeah, the, the trip, when I heard about it, it was, it's all about, um, which is maybe the coolest part of the trip, is it, it's about um, commemorating the birth of Roald Amundsen, who was the first man to go to the pole um, in 1911. So when I heard about that, you know, these historic polar adventurers, um, it's a little bit different style of exploring than we do. You know, they go out there without the cell phones and the cameras and the good gear, and they have no um, EPIRBs or PLBs to get picked up. Uh, they just head out into the unknown, and to me, that's kind of the glory age of exploration. You know, you head away for one, two, three years, um, and they used New Zealand. Well, they used Hobart as a base to get down to the ice, but a lot of them used Christchurch um, mm. to get down towards the Ross Seaside, and that's where they launched the exp- expedition. So it's something that I've been fired up about and read a lot about over the years. And so when I heard about this trip, I was definitely keen to try and uh, try my luck to be on it. You know. So do you apply? Yeah, so there was an application process, so people from all over New Zealand applied um, to be part of it, and also from Norway. So we were a joint New Zealand-Norwegian expedition, um, and then the trust scaled through, I don't envy that job, man, (laughs) all the applications, and they chose a team, um, and off we went. So who was in the team? So there were two Norwegians. So there was uh, a guy, Bengt, from Norway, who's really experienced in the polar, polar travel, 
he was kind of our guardian angel down there, I guess. Um, and Martha, who was a young Norwegian. Um, and then there were three Kiwis. So there was Nigel Watson, who was the executive director of the trust, and he led the expedition. Um, and also Laura Andrews, who's a firefighter out at the airport, and myself. So a massive mix of people um, and, uh, and a big task choosing people that get along and keen to give it a good crack and have the right attitude and have a good time. Uh, and I think they did a good job choosing the crew. Did you need um, different... Did they, did they mix you up with different skill sets? Like was someone um, medically minded? Was someone, I don't know, um, a cook? I know, not a cook, but you know what I mean? Did you have to have a bring, to bring different skill sets? Yeah, yeah. For me, they wanted a kayaker, you know. <laughs> <laughs> someone to make the most of the white water, um, which is the snow, you know. <laughs> no, I, I think they did, you know. So my job down there was to try and document it because um, we've been filming a lot of our trips uh, when we go on kayak adventures we film them and make documentaries and part of that is that you you can only fit a small amount of camera gear in your kayak and it's it's the same on an Antarctic mission you know you got to carry everything for yeah, 50 space days is a, space and weight must be a premium yeah yeah everything extra you put in you you feel the entire time you know so um you pack and repack and um for in terms of filmmaking it's a real big challenge so that was my job and um, the others have other had other roles where they're going to outreach to people or um, or ways they contributed to the team. How did you prepare for this epic journey? Like both your body, but I'd imagine your mind too. How did you prepare <laughs> to take this on? Oh, it was pretty overwhelming. Um, just the the scale of it, you know, like yeah, fifty days out of out of contact with the world in a place that's pretty remote and hostile and. Um, it has no contrast, it has no bush, no animals, nothing. It's just white. So for me, that was a big fear of um, what, how I'd react to just being out there in a pretty non-stimulating kind of place um, without knowing much about it. In terms of getting ready physically, I'd go out in the bush and drag tyres around to replicate my sled, which get a lot of funny questions and <laughs> a lot of funny comments, you know. Um, but that helped heaps. It was a massive uh, help for me to prepare for carrying the sled and the camera gear and stuff like that. I saw one of your videos on Instagram and you did a 360 panorama of as you were all coming along with your sleds and stuff. And 360 degrees, the whole way round was just ice meets sky on the horizon. <laughs> and it, you just mentioned there, there's no trees, there's no grass, there's no buildings, there's no towns, there's no people, there's no animals. It was just white meets blue as far as the eye could see. How how weird was that? Yeah, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. Uh, you, it's actually surprisingly beautiful. Um, when you think about it, f when you're not there, you think it would be really boring and you'd just go crazy walking towards nothing for <laughs> every day. <laughs> but when you're there, you get so in tune with the environment. You can see like little changes in the ridges of the snow. Um, you see changes in the weather happening and... Uh, the wind, um, the sun moving. It's its actually, because there's nothing there, you just kind of like get really in tune with it and see a lot of detail, I guess. Mm, yeah. mm. Was it long days or long nights, the South Pole? <laughs> was it like three hours daylight, 21 dark, or was it the other way around? No, it's, it was 24 sunlight. 24 yeah, sunlight? Yeah, yeah. Non-stop so sunlight? Non-stop. <laughs> and, and it's not like... It's not like it goes down for a dusk and a dawn. It's 24 hours of the sun at 2 p.m. circling above your head. 
It's un- unreal. That's weird, man. Yeah, yeah. It makes you go a bit crazy the first few days when you're trying to go to sleep and you walk outside and it's the middle of the afternoon somewhere. <laughs> <laughs> so is it basically on that sort of thing, like 50 days, because you don't have a day-night cycle, is it rest when you're tired, eat when you're hungry and forget the time? Yeah, we, oh, I mean, you try to keep some some sort of a routine, but it it's easy. So um, we'd kind of operate on, a, we'd get up at six, and the biggest job of the day is boiling water. You've got to melt snow to get water. Water gets food. Food gets energy, so you can keep going. So that's your biggest job, and that's that'd take three hours-ish in the morning. Really? Yeah. To boil water? Yeah, to boil. We'd boil like oh, about 11 litres in the morning, some for breakfast and a lot for the day, and then... We'd be doing the same kind of process in the night, so that takes up a massive chunk of time, and you're always kind of playing paper, scissors, rock for whose job that is. <laughs> <laughs> and then uh, and then we'd ski all day, and because um, it's daylight, if there's a weather front coming or something, some wind coming, you can adjust your time, so you can sleep in a bit and go all night, or you can finish early and get up early the next day. So when you embarked, you talked about 50 days. Did you know it was going to be 50 or did they say, look, it might be 40, might be 60, might be longer, weather dependent? What what was the – did you stick to that goal and you always knew it would be 50? Uh, yeah. <laughs> no, we were late. Um, <laughs> we we were aiming for 42 to 45 days. So we were about a week, I guess, overdue. Um, well, not overdue. We knew that a long way before. It's just because uh, no one goes out there. You don't know what the snow's like and um, – Different snow, different wind makes for different speeds of skiing. So we couldn't really get off um, off our long skins, they're called, which are kind of, they cover the whole bottom of the skis. They're quite slow, but they're, they're quite good when it's a bit um, in certain conditions. So we couldn't get off those for ages and then finally got on our short skins and started to do some bigger days. And then we were, you know, at that stage we were getting pretty tired and so we needed some shorter days. And the way it played out, we ended up being 50 days out there. How different was the terrain from day to day or week to week? Like, it's just so weird for me to ask because I don't even know what I'm asking. Like, slushy snow, hard pack ice. Did you ever see water? Did you ever see anything but ice or snow? Um, no water, that's for sure. <laughs> no rain. Um, we saw, yeah, the snow changes all the time. And what I learned on this trip was that the Inuit in uh, North Canada um, or in the Arctic, they have 300 words for snow, wow. for different kinds of snow, oh, different varieties, different varieties of snow, and you feel it after a few days. You start to realise what the snow's like. So we started our trip. Um, we we're about 100 metres above sea level, roughly on top of the ice, right at the edge of the continent. And so it's a lot warmer. The snow's a lot. Um, you know, there's more moisture in the snow. And as you move your way inland, it gets drier and chalkier, and the temperature drops significantly and starts to get pretty grippy but you feel all the changes and you you kind of it's you're kind of praying for ice because it go much faster in ice than on um deep snow you know temperature variations what's the warmest that got down oh, there man i don't know i get asked that question a few times um one day i think it was snowing and uh it was pretty like deep cloud foggy and i think it must have been around six or seven below zero and then the coldest um, when we got to the pole, someone mentioned it was minus 37, but I don't know if that was with the wind. But another day we had wind, it would have been well under minus 40, I reckon, with the wind. It was cold, yeah. What did your body, how did your body react to that chill? I just gets real cold. <laughs> <laughs> 
happened. And like, did, did, did you did you sweat? Did your tear ducts? Did you you see those photos of people with icicles hanging off their bed and their snot turns to yeah. ice? And yeah. all does that happen? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Any. You try not to sweat because it just freezes, um, which is hard when you're towing a big heavy sled behind you and you're going up a hill or something. Um, so I, to give you an example, if you if you sweat in your gloves, so we'd have my gloves would have three layers of liners on the inside and then a Gore-Tex kind of outer layer. And sometimes when I was, I'd shoot and then be chasing to catch up to the group, so I'd sweat a little bit. And then if we stopped to eat, you take your hands out of your gloves to undo a zip and they'd freeze. It's be like almost. solid, yeah, solid and hard to get on, and then they're cold for the rest of the day. Oh, so any moisture just goes to ice straight away. That's amazing. Uh, we've had some questions through. Let's let's get to some questions. Uh, question for Mr. Dawson. Mr. Dawson. Mr. Dawson. <laughs> there you go. Uh, from Mikey in Christchurch, South Pole. Is it true that you can wear a t-shirt in summer without wind, and you can get a tan in the down down there? Well, I don't take a t-shirt, but <laughs> <laughs> but uh, if I did, I guess you could wear it. You wouldn't want to wear it in the wind. Um, inside the inside your tent, it's usually pretty warm because the the sun's so strong. So you you can get up to fifteen degrees, say, inside the tent if you're oh, on wow. the sunny side of the tent. Which is something I learned. Big difference between which side of the tent you're on. <laughs> but at the South Pole, um, you're 2,800 metres above sea level, and it's wow. yeah, it's real cold. So it's a climb as well. Massive climb. It's over. not just a traverse, it's a climb. Yeah, yeah. so we climb about yeah, 2,800 metres in actual, but you're kind of undulating the whole time. But yeah, I, I suppose if it's not windy, you could wear a T-shirt. Um, on, the, on that warmest day without wind, I was wearing just um, a couple of layers, but still had kind of a windbreaker just from the air temperature yeah I don't what, know. <laughs> what, what's the what's the air like it must be so clean did yeah. you did you oh, notice yeah. yeah totally it's amazing just yeah it's so clean and crisp and yeah you, you notice there's no pollution at all it's and the and the sky is so clear you look for miles um around when it's i was going to say what what were the stars like at night <laughs> <laughs> beautiful <laughs> <laughs> they were all on the other side yeah. um what happens this is from someone jug jug price is that your name anyway what happens to your compass reading when standing at the south pole where does it point everywhere at the south pole points north Okay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but there. So there's there's the the ceremonial pole, which is um, where the South Pole was back in the day, I believe. <laughs> Incorrectly. Incor- no, no. So it moves. Um, well, that no, the pole doesn't move, but the the ice moves from oh, where gotcha. it was originally surveyed. So it moves about ten meters a year. So everything at the South Pole just shifts slowly towards the ocean. Mm. It's a long way. It'll take a long time to get there, but. Um, when you're when you're at the pole, yeah, you can just walk around the earth. Um, yeah, your compass spins around and takes ages to get readings, and it's not until you walk uh, quite a few meters away from it that it starts to find out where it is. Jeez, it's pretty cool. Messing with the compass's yeah. brain, eh? I'm really interested in the sensory stuff, right? So I've always I've just talked about the taste or the feel of the year. What about? I was thinking this morning driving to work. I really wanted to ask you about the sounds because. Here, even in the dead of night, there's the hum of the motorway, there's the chirp of a bird, there's the flap of the leaves in the trees, there's a river in the distance, there's the ocean or something. You've got none of that. You've got no cars, no planes, no 
I don't think wildlife, which we'll get to if you saw any wildlife, <laughs> there's no ocean, there's no nothing lapping. Is it deadly quiet? Yeah, it is. It is. When you're not moving, if, mm. you, if, you, if you sit still, it's unbelievably quiet. So um, when you're like going to sleep and everyone's going to sleep, I guess you can hear someone breathing, which you normally wouldn't be able to hear. Yeah, so you have you have human sounds like breathing or whatever. Um, you can yell between the tents. We had two tents, and the sound just carries because there's no there's no noise. But when you're skiing, it's actually really loud because you have um, your skis on the snow, and that's that that's the only sound you hear is your sled and your skis. So your poles going in, and they kind of make like a squeaking sound, and your skis moving, which is surprisingly really really loud. <laughs> but maybe it's because there's no other sounds. Because there's no other sounds but, to block it. Yeah. And then you sit down. So you sit down to eat, and you're just having a chill or whatever, just resting. Um, you hear nothing. Absolutely nothing. It's it's a real cool experience, to be honest. A very silent, um, kind of like soulful experience. And the you, ice never cracked or yawned or... Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So you hear that, and that's terrifying. <laughs> <laughs> so we had, uh, like in the conditions, we had these layers built up in the snow. And at the start, when we were walking onto the continent, because we started just off on the sea ice, on the ice shelf, and then... Um, you hear like you can hear the layers that have built up over um, a few weeks or months or whatever, and you step on it and you put weight and they collapse, and you hear just these mighty like cracking, whomping sounds Ooh. that if you heard in the hills in New Zealand you'd be terrified because it'd probably be big avalanche. But there it's just this whole sheet of ice going. <laughs> yeah, crazy. Yeah. <laughs> um, wildlife, penguins, fish, polar bears, anything like that. No, nah, nothing, nothing at all. We didn't see, this is the crazy thing, we didn't see a single thing, and it's because we're so far from the coast. So even though we started at the edge of the continent, the sea ice, the frozen um, ocean, goes for, for hundreds of k's out to the till it reaches water. And there's water deep down underneath us, I guess, somewhere, but um, there's no food for animals, so animals. Okay. I think if you see a bird, saw a bird flying around, you'd feel sorry for the poor guy because... You're not going to find anything. <laughs> Did you see anything? Did you just go, there's a hair tie? Or, yeah. <laughs> you know, there, there, there's a something that someone else has been here. Did you see any evidence of life having been there before? We we did. We saw, um, so about 26 days, I think, in, there was a fuel depot. So the planes that fly to the pole have a fuel depot at a place called Teal's Corner. And we turned up there and it was, um, they'd just flown in and they were, had three Kiwis were there and a Canadian guy and they were putting up a, a radio um, antenna for the plane so they get a, um, get a webcam forecast so they know if they can land or not. And that was just crazy. Hey! <laughs> so we've survived the Holocaust and so have you. <laughs> you come in and you haven't showered for 26 <laughs> days and your bed's big. And um, first kind of conversation outside of the group was, yeah, it was cool. Real cool, real special moment. Oh, amazing. We've got a swag of questions to get to now. Uh, we'll take our very quick break for new sport and weather. Any questions for Mike? Well, this is a fascinating chat. Everyone's loving the chat. So <laughs> double eight, double three, get your questions in and we'll get as, through as many as we can after the news. Righto, I'm trying to scroll through and find all of the... Questions. Uh, cracking yarn with this fella. Good get, Steph, from Brian. So he's just enjoying the yarn. Good on you, Brian. Um, uh, 
staff. Years ago, I was in the audience when Kevin Bigger and Jamie Fitzgerald spoke. They rode the Atlantic together, then later decided to go to South Pole. Really interesting guys to listen to. Did Matt spend time with anyone who'd been to the South Pole before prior to going? Uh, nah, I didn't, but I had some buddies who've done a bunch of stuff up in the Arctic, some big kayak expeditions, and they towed their boats um, across the Greenland ice sheet. And so I hit them up for some advice to try and get some tips, some pro tips. <laughs> What'd they say? <laughs> oh, just, I guess the, the basic stuff, eat heaps, stay warm, keep your, uh, don't take your gloves off. <laughs> <laughs> what did you, like, you had to pack everything and take it with you, 50 days worth of food for five people? Yeah, so well, actually, on that we we got um, some food thrown out of a plane. Oh, nice! So that made it made it meant that we took about eighteen days and then twenty days, and we had some food dropped by that at that depot as well. So um, that made life a little bit easier. Whereas um, the guys you're just talking about, they did they carried all their food and they laid depots themselves to the pole, wow. and then they were picking up their food on the way back. Well, that was their plan, I think. I don't know um, how it went, but pretty epic mission. And I'm picking it's not mince and cheese pies and chocolate eclairs, is it? No, I can give you a rundown of the food. It's, Go on. Uh, yeah, it's, uh, I would have eaten way more, <laughs> <laughs> but it was a lot. We'd have a big bag of oats with raisins and oil and butter and chocolate for breakfast. Um, then each day we'd eat a block of chocolate, like 250 grams, so I'd take a... Each. Each. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was a highlight for sure. Usually they'd be gone by 10 or 11 in the morning. <laughs> And then I'd have a bag of like um, trail mix, like um, nuts, dried fruit, biscuits, crackers, um, that kind of stuff, lollies. Um, and I'd just nibble that every hour, try and eat quite a lot of that during the day. And then at lunchtime, I'd usually eat like freeze-dried meal. Another, I'd try and get 1,000, 1,200 calories in at lunch. Um, and then, yeah, back onto the program of finishing your chocolate your other food and then dinner freeze dried and then I'd just basically inhale any food that was left <laughs> from the day or any food that anyone else had left. <laughs> so you had a, a box of food and that's today's one. Yeah, yeah. And away you go. Yeah, so as we got um you know, as it was taking longer we were trying to like not save food, but just trying to be mindful that we wanted to make sure we had a, enough to get there once we knew it was going to take. Because I guess days. you don't know if there's going to potentially be a storm and a delay where you can't walk for a day, so that's another day's food you need. Yeah, totally. So that's one of the big things. Is like a big storm comes in or wind. Wind's the killer there. You know, it's um, it's so cold in the wind that you'd be stuck in your tent, um, and then you if that's two three days, suddenly you're way behind schedule. Wow, amazing yeah. and. Um, Oh, what was the next thing I was going to ask you? Uh, wind, food. I'll ask you this one. I've been holding off from PJ <laughs> in Tamuka. Great chat, lads. So if everything freezes, how do you pee? <laughs> <laughs> you gotta, you gotta. <laughs> um, Tailwind. <laughs> when you're in the tent, you take a bottle so you don't have to go outside. So you have a pee bottle um, and you just pee in your bottle inside your sleeping bag, which is... It's high tech and it's actually, it sounds horrible, but in the moment it's awesome and you just empty that when you head out in the morning. That saves you getting up in the middle of the night, um, putting all your gear back on to go outside. And then uh, if you're cruising, you just do it fast <laughs> and you, you point downwind. <laughs> Surely uh, do you use the, uh, if you're doing it at night, is that a little bit of a hot water bottle? Uh, and <laughs> Give it a cuddle. You put it feet. down by your feet, warm your feet up. <laughs> <hey>. <laughs> What about, uh, I don't know, it's, we get a bit graphic here, Steph, but what about the uh, the number two? Oh, uh, jeepers. You dig a hole. You um, dig a hole. Because we were out there for so long, we actually took a spare tent 
uh, just in case, because it's windy, right? And if you if you screw up and your tent blows away, you're gonna you're not gonna be that warm anymore. So we we took a spare tent, and because um, there were five of us, one of us would throw that up each night when we went to to camp without the inside, and we used that as a kind of toilet tent, just dig a big hole in the in the snow and ice, and yeah. Friendships for life, like going through something like this with people you probably hadn't met, even known of, is that a sort of situation you form a really close bond really, really quickly like we're not used to in the real world because we have so many distractions? You're 24-7 with these strangers. Yeah, yeah, it can go either way, right? (laughs) (laughs) But for us it went the good way. Um, We, yeah, I think for sure made mates for life and... um, and you just get to know each other so well, right? Because you see people day in and day out. You see their their good days, you know, like you see the days that they're just on fire and they can go forever. And then you, you see their hard days and they see your good days and your hard days. And you learn real quick about the signs um, to how to help each other and work together. Because ultimately, you know, like someone can boost off ahead and be fast and strong. But um, if you want to make it over 50 days to the South Pole, it's about keeping everyone together and keeping everyone on the same level and keeping everyone kind of healthy because those are the things that are going to end in disaster, right? So, mm. um, But we got on super well and I'm looking forward to maybe some other trips with the crew as well. How did you – so you got to the South Pole 50 days um, and I've actually just finished listening to a podcast of a – it was actually quite a tragic one, but um, I think 28 people tried to climb K2 18 perished and they always say climbing the big peaks the dangerous bit is coming down yeah um because you've got you've got the drive and the and the instinct and I'm going to get to the top I'm going to summit gonna summit and you'll do everything you can they summit then all of a sudden they got just as long to get all the way back down <laughs> how did you leave the south pole so we we got picked up by a plane at the pole but the I mean on that the I think the thing in the environment we are, it's very mellow until something goes wrong because it's so cold. Mm. And the the danger of the mountain climbing equivalent is like the start and the finish. In between, you're just in your groove. You wake up, you wear your gear, you're you're on it, you're eating well. When you arrive at the start, you're like buzzing. <laughs> you know, you're like this whole new environment that you put your gloves down and you look around and you're doing all this stupid stuff that <laughs> has massive consequence. And same when you get to the pole, you come in and you're just like. <gasps> Man, we've made it, we've made it, but you're still five or six Ks. And in and, and that time, you know, it's so cold that it takes two minutes to get frostbite or something like that um, on your fingers. So, yeah, you got to always be on your game, on your guard. Um, but we were lucky. when Once we got to the pole, there was a, another Norwegian crew that just by chance that started somewhere else. And we actually arrived at the same day at the South Pole. And then uh, a, we got a plane pick up and flown back out of the continent. What Can you remember your hardest day? Or hardest night? Well, it's all day. So <laughs> your hardest moment? Um, yeah, I had a couple of days that were pretty hard, just being so tired. Um, and uh, yeah, there was one in particular, the viz was really, really low, so you can't see anything. And you're just tripping over Sistrugi, which is these windblown ice um, ruts, which can get up to like one meter high. Wow. How, you, do you get, how do you get a sled through that? Oh, you try and get, you walk around them, but okay. um, when it's white out, you just... You just go for it and everyone seemed to be going so fast and I was like oh my can't keep up guys <laughs> help help um, and you're just kind of hanging in uh, the cool thing is that you know like all you got to do is get to camp and then you get a bit of break so um, hung in there but though there was I had two days like that one near the start um, just with the realization after about 
because it's like 12 days in that there's still 38 days to go and then another one in the middle where you just you're just tired you just need a need a rest i was going to say what do you do for recreation you're like you haven't got tv <laughs> you haven't got netflix you haven't got uh you can't play games on your phone you can't you can't do anything but i guess it's just ski or rest ski or rest yeah yeah you're either on your feet or off your feet mm. so you're either skiing or you're lying down but um I mean, at the start, I had some podcasts, I had some uh, some Spotify, but that ends after a few weeks when you're not connected. And um, and that was kind of the coolest thing is that you realise you don't need all that noise and distraction in the background, that you can actually just look around, enjoy where you are. It's kind of a privilege, a massive privilege to be there. Mm. So enjoy it. Last break coming up. We've probably got time for two more questions. You can text them through double eight double three. Mike Dawson in studio. We'll be back with them after this. Helping you tune out your annoying workmate. You're listening to Afternoons with Staffy on SENZ. Well, it's been an absolute delight having Mike Dawson in studio. Mike, you, you went away, you came back. Um, I've got two burning questions, really. What did you find out about yourself with all of that time in that isolation? Well, that's a big question. <laughs> <laughs> I think um, the biggest thing for me was like, what I was just chatting to you about before about the noise, like the constant distraction and noise and busyness that you have in real life, which is important, you know, it's all part of the game. But when you're down there, you have no, um, there's nothing and you just have time to think and you start to think about where you want to go, what you want to do, what your goals and ambitions are and um, and what life looks like. So it was, yeah, it was pretty cool to have time to do that. Whereas I think in life, everyone wants to do that, but no one has any time. Mm. Someone's text through and said, Thanks for the food intake story, but just your a twenty four hour day. So it's like, how long do you ski for? How long do you sleep for? Do you rotate during the day? How does that work? So a typical day, we'd wake up at six, do the water, and then would be a pack up camp around eight thirty um, to nine, and then we'd be on our skis nine sharp, and then we'd ski in fifty minute blocks because it's a long day. So we'd ski for 50, 50 minutes to an hour actually, roughly, and then we'd take about ten minute break. And we'd just keep doing that all day uh, with a longer break at lunchtime. And we'd do that for about nine hours each day. So that would take us with lunch and stuff. That takes us to about 9 p.m. actually by the time we put camp up. And then you get the water boiling, have dinner, and you go to sleep around midnight. So, it was so six hours sleep? About six hours sleep, yeah. Could yeah. you sleep longer? Oh, yeah. yeah, I'm a good sleeper. <laughs> <laughs> what I mean by that is do alarms wake you up? Oh uh, yeah, you get in a real good routine because you know if you're not if you're not up at six getting the water on, then you're going to be late, and it kind of extrapolates. So if you come into campsite and you or campsite come into the patch of snow that you're planning to camp on, <laughs> <laughs> um, and you're not fast, so you don't put your tent up quick, and you don't get your stove going, and you sit around chatting, which I kind of enjoy doing, and then you get to the stove eventually. Suddenly it's two a.m. that you're going to sleep, or one a.m. that you're going to sleep. So um, you learn to to do your important things, prioritise the important stuff real quick and then relax afterwards. So 50, 60 days out of civilization, you arrive back into civilization, back into normality, no space, no silence. Was that a shock? Yeah, yeah, it was. Man. I, I, we walked back in and uh, and the, where we jumped on a plane to get off the continent, there were a few people around there and um, walked into like a, a big tent that um, where you could eat like a kitchen tent dining room 
and it was noisy and loud um, and there were heaps of people, you know, spinning big yarns and it felt like, it, I just was saying this before, but it felt like uh, someone hit me in the face with a pace, baseball bat, um, just overwhelmed by the noise and I spoke to someone that I'd seen two months-ish before when we left and I couldn't even have a conversation. I just, it was too much noise and too much going on and um, it was quite confronting for a second, but you quickly get used to it, you know. Uh, so I guess you don't miss the you didn't miss the sounds of cars and yeah, sounds yeah. of buses and sirens and helicopters and planes. It was just what a treat you've had, mate. What 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 a, what a wonderful experience. Oh, amazing! And you you learn to appreciate um, the little things like you can turn a tap on and get hot water, or you can uh, you know you can dry yourself off or wash yourself somewhere, or you can jump in your car and go and pick up hot food somewhere else. You know, like you learn to appreciate the conveniences of modern life. Are pretty cool. We're pretty lucky. Mm. Yeah. Well, Mike Dawson, I, I massive credit to you for having the guts to do it, but they're just absolutely embracing it and your preparedness to come in here for an hour and spend it with us and spin your yarns and tell us the <laughs> stories. Like people have loved it. They've been texting it all the time, They're just loving your yarns. So just just well done, mate. Have you got another one planned? Have you got anything big else planned apart from coaching up and coming kayakers? You coach the up and coming kayakers for sure. That's where the priority is at the moment. Um but I'm sure something will come up. I know Antarctic Heritage Trust is they're into this. They love um, putting on expeditions that inspire the next generation of explorers, and um, and so I'm sure they'll be they'll be looking at the next thing or the next expedition. So I just encourage any youngster in New Zealand that's got a passion for the outdoors to get out there and do it. And and likewise, maybe the South Pole's not for you, but just get out and explore your backyard and just enjoy it. Perfect, Mike. Congratulations. Well done. Thanks for coming in. No worries, man. Thanks for having me.